my name is Kim Metrison, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. Today, I get the pleasure of talking to two of the newest members of the Rutgers Law School faculty, Taya Johnson and Matt Shapiro, both of whom started with us over the summer, and so their transition to Rutgers Law School has been uh, a little disrupted by the world around us, but certainly we're happy to have them. So Taya and Matt, thank you both so much for making time to talk to me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Of course. So, you know, given all of the options of what's available out in the world and how you could have decided to spend your life, both of you decided to go to law school and then ultimately to go into academia. So I would love to hear about that path and that trajectory in particular. You know, what was it that drew you to the idea of being a lawyer? So Taya, why don't you start us off? Sure. Well, I, I love this. I, I um, like lots of lawyers. I love talking about myself. <laughs> so, so I guess my origin story, I mean, it's funny how you have certain events in your life that really have an impact on you. But when I was in high school, actually, I got an internship for the Vera Institute of Justice. And I, and I would say that that internship at age 17 actually did sort of set the, the course of my life. It was just, I, I was introduced to the criminal justice system, a thing I'd known nothing about at all. And I, and I got to sort of see all these aspects of it and it led to me working for the Center for Alternative Sentencing and doing prisoner education in college and eventually interning for the Legal Aid Society and working for the Manhattan DA's office. So I really, that, that was my focus from, from sort of 17 on. I took a little bit of a break and I ended up living in Quito, Ecuador for several years after law school. And actually went to law school because I thought I wanted to do international law. Although, of course, what does that mean? I don't think I understood what that meant then. Um, I understand a little better what it means now. But once I got to law school, it's just drawn right back into to criminal law and and um, and particularly defense work. And so, I did end up after law school going to be a public defender in New York City at the Legal Aid Society and really loved that job tremendously, but also felt at a loss or, you know, that, that I wasn't making much difference. Um, I was seeing a lot of stuff that bothered me tremendously, but, but how do you sort of get that out into the world and tell others about it? And, and being a, a, an academic, I thought was one way to do that. And so I ended up starting to think about while I was at Legal Aid, how might I I transition into academia so I can write about these things and think about them deeply. And and that led me to a fellowship at Stanford Law School, where I worked a lot with their criminal justice center run by uh, Debbie Muckamal, who's just terrific, and um, got to work with Joan Pedersilia and Bob Weisberg and just some real leaders in the field. And that, you know, that certainly cemented it for me. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to to write and to teach. And so, and so that's, you know, how I ended up in this, this area, always had a huge interest in criminal law, criminal justice, the, the criminal justice system, and sort of found myself saying, how do I think about these things and write about these things? And, and being an academic was, was a way to do that. Although I joke that I don't think anyone besides my parents have read my, my <laughs> articles, but that's okay. I think they're interested in them. So. <laughs> 
Well, thank you. I mean, we're definitely going to spend some time talking about your work in criminal justice, given the world that we live in and all the conversations that are going on about criminal justice reform. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to coming back to you. But Matt, let's let's get your origin story. How is it that you ended up a, a lawyer and then a law professor? Yeah, I guess um, like Taya, uh, law was the plan from a, a pretty early age. So my dad was a lawyer by training, worked in government and, and government affairs. So Discussions of public affairs uh, were always pretty common uh, in our house, and so that was always a, a very strong interest of mine. And I'd say I went into college pretty much settled that that law school would be the eventual uh, next step. But then, or I guess over the course of college, I ended up developing kind of more theoretical, philosophical interests, uh, particularly in political theory. Uh, ended up wanting to explore those in graduate school, uh, and went over to the UK uh, at Oxford. Uh, to do first a master's and then uh, ended up staying on for a doctorate there as well. Uh, And so that kind of shifted me in a more uh, academic direction. And then, but I guess one thing that came out of that, well, many things came out of the experience, including I met my wife over there. So uh, kind of most importantly, Um, but, but I also found myself being somewhat frustrated with just kind of the degree of abstraction uh, in political philosophy as it's kind of practiced uh, today. I think that abstraction is important. That's often the way to make theoretical headway. But as someone who had those interests in kind of how government actually works uh, and how public affairs actually work, I found it a little frustrating. And so I thought, well, maybe not, you know, academia in political philosophy, but maybe legal academia is a way uh, to kind of thread the needle here where, you know, we are many of us still very much care about theory and theorizing uh, and abstracting a bit. But we're also, as trained lawyers, really focused on how institutions actually work uh, and how they work in the real world. Uh, and so I thought, okay, being a legal academic is kind of a way to strike that balance. Went to law school with the hope uh, that I would ultimately become a, a law professor. Ended up after that, you know, practicing uh, briefly uh, just to get some <laughs> on the ground experience, but knowing uh, full well that the goal was to, to come back uh, to legal academia and, and kind of blend legal analysis with the theoretical work that I had started to do in graduate school. Got it. Perfect. When you ask people about, you know, being law professors, there are certainly some people who think that they're, they want to sort of emulate the experience that they had in law school because they enjoyed it so much. And so they take on, you know, a particular persona as a law professor. Uh, I'm going to hop back to you, Taya, with this question. Once you decided to become a law prof- professor and you, you know, started to have that experience and were teaching students and interacting with students and interacting with faculty, was there a sort of a vision of being a professor that you had in your mind that you were sort of playing out? And if so, is that sort of, was it comfortable for you? Did you realize that that's actually not the kind of law professor that you wanted to be? Um, You know, what is your experience like being somebody who went to law school and now is back in law school, um, but on the other side of the podium? Yeah. So I think I had the benefit of I had taught before, so I'd done prisoner education both in college and then later when I was at at Stanford. I actually, what I was doing when I was living in Quito, Ecuador, is I was teaching eighth grade English Mm -hmm. and social studies at the American school there. And so, and then I, I got this great opportunity to teach legal research and writing. And so 
and that was also at Stanford. And so before I, I actually taught a doctrinal, you know, criminal law or criminal justice, uh, criminal procedure course, I should say, um, I'd had all this great experience teaching where I'd had wonderful, wonderful mentors who had really shaped me as a professor. So I think I, I came into being a professor with a sense that the reality is, is that eighth graders, people in prison, law students, we all learn in similar ways. Of course, individuals have different ways of learning, but there are certain things you just have to keep in mind about teaching material, no matter what that material is or who you're teaching it to. It needs to be interesting. It needs to be accessible. You know, even things about what people's attention span is. You know, I, I learned a lot about that teaching eighth graders that I incredibly <laughs> useful for the for the law classroom. You can't just lecture at people for an hour and a half and expect that they will take all that information in, in a meaningful way. So I think that my, my prior experience being a teacher has really informed my classroom work, which is lots of exercises, lots of hypotheticals, you know, lots of sort of acting it out right there in class. Let's stand up and do closing arguments in this case. How do you pair the facts to the law? How does that happen in real life? Because this is what lawyers do. And if you really understand the law, you, you'll be able to take the facts and apply the law to these facts. And so I think that's an incredibly important part of what I, I do. And I always say, I, I took criminal law from Professor Roger Fairfax, and, and his class had such a profound impact on me. And I stole lots of his ideas, and he uses a lot of humor, a lot of interaction with students. And, and that for me is, you know, in terms of law school professors set the model. And, and I sort of always think to myself, what would, what would Roger Fairfax do in this situation and, and try to take it from there? So, so I, I love teaching. I mean, that, that to me is a huge part of the, of the joy of the job is the interaction with students. And of course, it's the part yeah. I miss the most uh, during this whole thing, because teaching is really incredibly fun. Yeah. So what has it been like for you transitioning from, you know, teaching in a classroom to teaching virtually? I, I think it has been difficult because I do miss, you miss the interaction, but you also miss all the interaction that goes on outside of the class, right? right. Chatting with the students before they arrive, the, the questions that happen right after the class is over and someone comes up and says, hey, can we talk about that a little more? And there are ways to do that over Zoom, but they're not as natural. And I don't think they're as easy for students. So that, of course, you're missing. And and then I, because I do so many exercises, Zoom is a great, great product that lets you put people into groups and do all sorts of cool things. But I think it can't replace the, you know, the, the nature of people being together and learning together. And so I think the transition has been better than expected, but I miss being in a classroom with students and certainly hope that we're on our way someday to being back in a classroom with students. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I have found most difficult is, you know, there's, there's something about the energy of a classroom where everybody's sort of feeding off of each other. And that's hard to replicate, I have found, yeah. um, in, in a virtual setting. So, you know, you can't tell if people are really laughing at your jokes, you know, <laughs> you know where are people looking, you know, all of that stuff makes right. it a little harder. So, 
um, but we're muddling through. Folks are That's definitely great, great. doing the work. Exactly. Yeah. So what about you, Matt? I mean, how would you how would you describe your sort of law professor persona and and sort of where did you pick it up from? And then also for you, you know, what has that transition been like been like to go from teaching in a classroom to teaching on a screen? So I don't know, legal academia is weird because it's one of the few disciplines where you don't get any training in one of the two key parts of your job, right? So uh, for scholarship, right, you've done a fair bit of writing before you get your first uh, tenure track job now. And so you kind of have a sense of how to write a law review article and, and what you should be doing on that front. But nowhere along the way is there really pedagogical training in the way that you would have, say, in a PhD program. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, I also, like Taya, did did a fellowship where I taught legal research uh, and, and writing. Uh, but there, <laughs> you know, they threw us the curriculum and said, you're kind of on your own, make of it what you will. So I, I guess you're right that you do fall back on uh, your experience uh, in law school and what you thought worked and, and maybe <laughs> in some cases uh, didn't work so well. Um, in terms of my persona, I guess, I, I don't know, I, I don't think of it deliberately or yeah, has, having cultivated it uh, deliberately. But if I have to think, well, whom am I maybe subconsciously trying to emulate? Um, I had Heather Gerken, who's now the dean of Yale Law School uh, for con law. And, you know, everyone is just kind of blown away by her uh, as, a, as a teacher. And mm-hmm. I think part of it was the professionalism with which she approached it. So, you know, this is a professional school. We're training future professionals. And I think she took it very seriously from day one as part of her mission uh, to help students form their professional identities or their budding professional identities as lawyers. And so that means that, you know, a relatively formal uh, classroom where, you know, we're taking everything uh, pretty seriously, but also a fun classroom recognizing that, you know, these issues are really interesting uh, and it's fun to talk about uh, these issues with people who are uh, kind of on on the same path. Um, together. So I've definitely found myself, I think, at least implicitly emulating that kind of style. Though, yeah, I think one thing that's changed, and and Tay alluded to this as well, is the emphasis more on the the term practice ready uh, gets used a a lot. You know, I'm not training my students in uh, civil procedure about how to actually take a deposition. There are other advanced courses that do that. But in terms of focusing on, you know, applying these legal principles that we're learning to actual fact situations, they or the kinds of factual situations they might encounter in practice, I think is incredibly important to do. And is something I spend a lot more time on in class than say was true of any of my classes in law school. So I think that's kind of one uh, significant difference with my own experience as a student compared with what I'm doing as a professor. The transition has been, it's been rough. Uh, Though, as, as Taya said, maybe, yeah. you know, a little better than, than expected. I mean, I, I will say the term Socratic dialogue gets, gets tossed around, uh, meaning just the professors usually asking questions of students rather than just lecturing at them. That, that translates pretty well, I'd say, to Zoom. And it helps to keep it a little more interactive and, and people a little more engaged. Though in a larger class where you're only hitting a subset of students, it's, it can be challenging at times. But I think Tay is absolutely right that taking advantage of the, you know, the unique features that the technology offers, for example, breakout rooms for small group discussions is actually in some ways maybe an improvement. 
you know, those discussions, I th the small group discussions maybe tend to go a little better in the uh, virtual format than they would maybe in class where you have a lecture hall kind of burst into a cacophony as, as these groups break off. So, right. um, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses, I'd say more minuses than pluses, but, you know, we've, we've been yeah. able to muddle through. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a trial by fire, I think, for, for everybody. Um, and the fall certainly better than when everybody switched to virtual in the spring, um, where folks really had no lead time. So I want to, I'm actually going to stay with you for a little bit, Matt, because I want to start talking about um, both the teaching and scholarship that you and Taya do. And you told folks that you are a civil procedure teacher. As a civil procedure professor, how would you explain to your first year students what it is that you do in civil procedure and why does it matter? This is the challenge for my course, because I'd say even if they don't know the term torts, they probably know what a lawsuit is and kind of what a slip and fall case is, and, and they can kind of intuitively grasp uh, that idea, whereas with civil procedure, there, there's no intuition <laughs> to it. It's, it's all completely arbitrary and, and artificial. So, you know, I mean, if we look at the kind of two words uh, in the phrase, um, so civil is distinguishing it from criminal, so we're focused on lawsuits that can involve a public party, but usually are, are between two private parties most often. And then procedure is uh, the procedures by which a lawsuit is, is decided as opposed to kind of the substantive law that governs who wins or who loses. So we're, again, we're focused on kind of the procedures, usually in federal court uh, for my course, um, that you would follow uh, in, in deciding a lawsuit. One of the things that's been really interesting over the last few weeks of the, as there's been you know, all of these lawsuits post-election post is how much civil procedure matters, right? <laughs> uh, that is definitely right. Um, yeah, so a lot of these uh, election-related uh, challenges really kind of fail to get off the ground. So a lot of these decisions aren't kind of based on substantive uh, election law, but they're based on, you know, failing to meet basic pleading requirements, or actually there are a lot of, so the other course I teach is evidence, which governs kind of what kind of uh, uh, facts can be uh, adduced in, in court and actually considered by the decision maker. So all of this illustrates, and I'm glad you raised it, why civil procedure is important. Uh, and the phrase that we civil procedure professors like to uh, use is that procedure is power. Mm. That, uh, you know, you can have the law on your side, you can have morality on your side, you can have, you know, the most compelling case possible. But, you know, if you don't follow the proper procedures and if you don't present your case in the way that the procedures kind of dictate, you're out of luck. Again, even if there's some sense in which you should uh, win win your case. So uh, we all say that our courses are the, the most important that our students will ever take, but I, I really do think civil procedure is, is right up there. Uh, and it's something that as a student, at least I didn't appreciate in real time. I, I yeah. thought this is a dry, arid, you know, technical, just unrelatable course. And then you go to a law firm or, you know, to uh, a public sector organization where you're actually litigating a case and you realize it's all procedure. You know, all Absolutely. we're talking about is how do we draft our complaint so that it, you know, passes the pleading standard or, you know, how do we create the record we need to avoid summary judgment and get to trial? All these things that 
Um, my students who just took my exam are probably, you know, never want to hear again. Um, but uh, it, it is all, all, all important. Absolutely. The, the other way that I've heard civil procedure teachers talk about, you know, the importance of procedure. I mean, procedure is power is a good one, but I've also heard folks say, you know, if, if, you, if you can make the rules of the game, you're always going to win. Which, which, you know, makes me think about how, you know, some of these questions that I think you're actually tackling in your scholarship um, about how procedure has an impact on, you know, different populations of people or people who have different kinds um, of cases and ways in which procedure can be, you know, potentially problematic. So can you talk about your work a little bit? So as you kind of alluded to, I, I guess my work tries, I mean, at the highest level, maybe to to call into question this sense that I had in law school that civil procedure is just this arid technical uh, body of doctrine, because I, I do think it does implicate some of the most fundamental uh, values that we uh, use to evaluate our society and how it's how it's organized. So because procedure is power, because making the rules of the game matters, uh, civil procedure really determines, for example, whose claims and voices are are recognized uh, in our society and heard, and uh, how you know the benefits and burdens of social cooperation are distributed among uh, different populations. So, I mean, those are kind of the questions I, I like to think about, um, and then I think are certainly explored in civil procedure scholarship, but maybe underexplored compared with uh, other areas. Um, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, in terms of, well, how does civil procedure fare? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a mixed record, right? So uh, I, I think there's a lot of criticism, much of it uh, justified about, you know, recent Supreme Court decisions, uh, recent rules uh, that have been adopted by the various uh, rulemaking bodies that do seem to have kind of, you know, a pro-defendant kind of pro-repeat player, kind of the big parties that are routinely in court kind of slant to them and kind of uh, maybe an anti-little guy uh, kind of bias. And so that's a concern, again, if, if procedure is power, if, you know, the people making the rules uh, of the game kind of get to determine whether they win the game. Um, all these things are, are really strong concerns. And yet, and I guess a part of my scholarship is also trying to call attention to the and yet and, and what we still have. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable institution when you think about it. There are really few institutions in our society where anyone, no matter their walk of life, can kind of walk into court and just by filing a complaint, hail however powerful a person you can imagine, into, including the president of the United States, uh, into court and for mm -hmm. some kind of response. Now, that response may mm -hmm. be completely back of the hand, right? Uh, no standing yeah. or, you know, completely frivolous or whatever. But that fundamental uh, feature of, of our system, which isn't true of many other systems where a private party can just initiate the process basically on his or her saying so, is, is, is pretty remarkable. And so I think... As as we think about ways the system is changing, um, you know, this feature kind of provides strong reasons to try to to make this institution uh, accessible and also to try to, you know, strike some balance here where, uh, yes, we're concerned about burdens on the parties that are getting hailed into court and have to defend themselves. But we don't, 
in taking account of those burdens, uh, want to, you know, completely shut out uh, people who may otherwise not get a hearing in other uh, areas of society. Absolutely. One of the things that I that I really enjoy is is hearing um, professors who teach in particular areas that folks might think of as being, you know, sort of dry and boring, help people understand why these things matter, right? Like why civil procedure matters and why we should be enthusiastic about it and why students shouldn't, you know, be terrified of taking a civil procedure class because it matters and it matters really deeply and it matters, of course, for, issue, for issues of justice as well, um, as, as you were suggesting. So, Taya, um, I want to I talk to you about criminal law, which, again, is an area of the law where people tend to think it's going to be interesting, even though there can be very polarizing views on it. And you spent time as a public defender, so I imagine that that experience influences your scholarship, the things that you think about. I know that you're, uh, you're particularly interested in plea bargaining and sentencing. So are there particular experiences that you remember, things that stand out for you from your time as a public defender that shape the way that you now think about, write about, teach about criminal law? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when we sort of talk about origin stories, I often tell the story of standing in arraignments one night and I was representing somebody who was charged in a drug crime for having crack residue in a crack pipe. And we were haggling over whether or not I wanted time served. The uh, district attorney was asking for 30 days. The judge was sort of trying to find some middle ground, um, you know, kind of reminding me of uh, law school negotiation class, like how can we get to yes on this? And of course, the thing we were getting to yes on was how long a human being would spend at Rikers Island, mm-hmm. um, this notoriously terrible place. Mm-hmm. And I remember just thinking, right? Oh boy, I don't know if I can keep doing this job. This just feels, you know, useless. Now mm. I. I encourage my students to become public defenders and I and I really do think that it's it's an amazing experience but you will have those moments and that for me was just this very profound moment it was really a case I'd had a million of these cases but it was sort of stark relief this moment of why are we negotiating over a few days when the person will not be benefited by that and I don't society will be benefited. And I don't know what benefit yeah. we're all getting by standing here. Um, and so I also think often that that was the moment that I thought, you know, plea bargaining is this area that doesn't get nearly enough attention, even though plea bargaining is the system. This is all we're doing. Uh, I, I probably had, yeah. I think about seven or eight trials while I was a public defender, and that was considered a huge number. But comparatively, right, to the number of cases mm. I plea bargained, it was nothing. I, I, I plea bargained out hundreds and hundreds of cases. But let, let me interrupt you for one second. So on one hand, I feel like everybody's watched enough episodes of Law & Order that they feel really confident, that they yeah. understand what you're saying when you talk about plea bargaining. Um, but for those people who are not a part of the Law & Order universe, what, what happens in plea bargaining? 
Absolutely. So 99% of cases, 95% of cases, depending on where you are, are resolved with a guilty plea. And what that means is the defendant doesn't go to trial and have a jury or a judge hear the case. The defendant pleads guilty. Um, and we never get to any sort of um, adjudication. And most of those guilty pleas are the result of some negotiation between the defense and the prosecution. So while there are some times where defendants just say, I'm guilty, I will plead guilty to this crime, and judge, you can sentence me, much of the time what's happening is the defense attorney is saying, hey, you know, if my client will plead guilty, what would you be willing to consider? And and then there's some, you know, some negotiation, um, which is one of the big reasons when I, I teach a class on plea bargaining, I teach the class partly as a negotiation class, because that is one of the most important skills you can have as a defense attorney or as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, teaching something as profound as how long will people be in prison or what sort of conviction will this person carry with them or what collateral consequences like deportation or mm-hmm. sex offender registration or the loss of housing, how can we bargain around those things? That being the subject of negotiation, I also find very troubling. Yeah. But that's what a plea bargain really is, is this back and forth, how do we get to a resolution that involves us avoiding a trial. And I think there's often, or at least for for some people, there's a sense that the power dynamic there between the prosecutor and the public defender and the defendant is one that favors the prosecution. Do you think that that's a right way for people to think about the system? Yes. I I certainly am a believer that the the power dynamic means that Unlike a regular negotiation um, over, you know, let's say a, a, a contract, the the power is so unevenly distributed that it's almost impossible to say that this is a meaningful negotiation because the mm-hmm. defendant is is really at a disadvantage, and and it gives prosecutors huge power to shape cases in the ways they want. But also, I think what's important, you know, given recent discussions about criminal justice reform and about police violence, to also hide things that they may not mm. want the public to see. You know, one of the things I, I think did not get nearly enough attention, which to me is the story of plea bargaining, is when Brianna Taylor was killed, her ex-boyfriend who was on the warrant, the initial warrant that the police had and that they executed on her home, her, her ex-boyfriend wasn't there and hadn't been there in months and months. Mm-hmm. And he said that Brianna Taylor had nothing to do with anything that he had been involved in with drugs. And one of the initial things that the prosecutor did is said, we will give you an amazing deal. Even though, by the way, we just executed a no-knock nighttime warrant for you. We're going to give you an an amazing deal if you will sign this piece of paper that says Brianna Taylor was one of your co-conspirators or one of your, in your cohort of of drug dealers. But but to me, that story is, that is plea bargaining. We might not have ever heard about Brianna Taylor. We might not know her name if indeed the case had been resolved through a very favorable plea bargain for this, the, the ex-boyfriend, and he had been willing to say, 
yes, in order for me to get this favorable plea bargain, I will say that Brianna Taylor was somehow involved. When, of course, there's, there's absolutely zero evidence that she had any involvement in anything illegal. And so, you know, to me, plea bargaining, you can see it in, in all different ways. You can see it in all these cases that you read about in the newspaper. It's, it's, it's everywhere in the criminal system. Yeah. So, you know, as I said earlier in our discussion, we are living through a time where discussions about criminal justice, our criminal justice system, um, and criminal justice reform and police violence, all of these things are such a part of regular conversation in ways that they haven't been, I think, for, for, for quite a long time. And one of the things that we've seen that I, that I find completely fascinating is the number of progressive prosecutors that are popping up um, around the country. And obviously, you know, we're right outside of Philadelphia. So we've got um, Larry Kasner um, in Philadelphia, who's somebody who's, who's well known as transitioning from being a, def- a criminal defense lawyer to being the, the top prosecutor. And so I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts on this wave of progressive prosecutors and, you know, what do they bring to the table, maybe to deal with some of those power dynamics that you were just talking about? Right. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's a pretty hopeful thing that public opinion has changed so much in a pretty recent time frame that you're seeing all these progressive prosecutors get elected. I actually, my my office mate at Legal Aid, um, when we started out, is running um, on a very progressive platform in Manhattan. And had you told us a decade ago mm-hmm. that she could have run, I mean, it would have been laughable, right? It would have, right. It, you would have thought there's no chance that anyone is going to elect a public defender who sort of runs on a, on a, a super progressive platform. Progressive prosecutors can do a lot of good in terms of changing policies. But I think we also need to be incredibly mindful of what the limits are on having progressive prosecutors, because if they're voted out, their policies are voted out. Mm -hmm. Um, And the power structure remains the same. The laws remain the same. So there was was an article I saw, and this was now probably a year ago, that said Larry Krasner legalizes marijuana. And what the article was really about is that he said, I'm not going to prosecute marijuana anymore. I'm not going to prosecute these sorts of marijuana cases. Well, that's not legalizing marijuana. That's no longer enforcing the laws as they stand. But those laws are still in the books. And if somebody new comes in and wants to now enforce them, they certainly can. And in fact, we see that really at the federal level. You had Eric Holder, who wrote the famous Holder memo that said, with drug crimes, we are now not going to enforce the law at the absolute max. And when Sessions came in, he said, the policy is now different. We are now Mm -hmm. going to charge people with everything they can possibly be charged with and go from there. And of course, from a plea bargaining perspective, that absolutely changes the dynamic of the negotiations if you've been charged with you know, a count that carries a life sentence versus a count that carries a 10-year sentence. You're now in a very different position when you're starting that negotiation. So what I, I hope progressive prosecutors will do is I hope that they'll gain some political power, which prosecutors tend to have 
political power. We don't often think of them in that role, but they have power to lobby legislatures about the laws that they pass. And the hope would be to really roll back the scope of the laws, right? The number of laws, the types of mandatory minimums, right? Get rid Mm -hmm. of mandatory minimums and you'll change plea bargaining for the better. You'll change, you know, you'll have a much more just system if you get rid of mandatory minimums. But we should be really mindful that that's different than somebody saying, I won't enforce mandatory minimums. That's a temporary state, which is not necessarily going to last forever once the next person comes in and takes over. Thank you. Thank you, Taya. That was super, super helpful. We're, we're getting to the end of our conversation today. So I want to ask a last question to both of you. So as I said earlier in our conversation, I teach torts. And one of the reasons why I love teaching torts is that I get to teach first year students. Um, and in particular, I get to teach first year, first semester students. Sometimes I'm the very first class, the very first law school law school class that students have. And that's just a really wonderful position to be in. And so, um, you know, given that both of you also have the opportunity to teach first year students and to potentially significantly shape the way they think about law school and the way that they think about the law, tell me what you want students to take from your class. What do you want to, to stick out for them that they're going to remember, hopefully, for years and years to come? I was hoping you'd start with Taya to give me time to think. Um, <laughs> no, I, but I guess this, I actually think this follows nicely on uh, your discussion with Taya and particularly about progressive prosecutors. And I think it also goes back uh, to my earlier comment about kind of the persona, I guess, I've cultivated uh, in terms of uh, trying to emphasize for my students basically the formation of a professional identity as a lawyer from from day one. And that's one of the reasons it's such an immense privilege, as you said, to, to be able to teach first-year students, because you really get them at that first moment and impress upon them the importance of that. And I guess what I mean by professional identity as a lawyer means that you have commitments, moral commitments, religious commitments, um, family commitments, whatever they may be. Uh, and and that in turn gives you a kind of a vision of how you think the world could be improved and made better. And that's something, you know, we all hopefully strive to do in our own ways. And I guess what I try to impress on my students is uh, that's great and that's important. But when you become a lawyer, you're choosing a certain toolkit for pursuing those ends and those objectives. And it's important to you know, constantly think about and interrogate how the toolkit you've chosen by trying to become a lawyer can advance those goals and maybe not fully realize uh, those goals in ways that might cause you to, you know, maybe look elsewhere for for other means of achieving them. And so um, if you think about Taya's discussion of, of progressive prosecutors, which I think illustrates this really well, one of the criticisms of pro- progressive prosecutors from the left is that they're kind of propping up the system, right? In some ways that uh, they're, they're helping to kind of legitimate in some way uh, a system that is, is profoundly unjust. You know, I'm a lawyer, right? So I, of course yeah. I believe that um, uh, lawyers can actually make a difference, but the way they're making a difference is by going into the institution, becoming part of the institution and trying to change it from within, right? Pushing the boundaries of the institution uh, maybe, but not, completely 
destroying the institution at the same time. And so that's, I think, can be a very effective way of change. And, and there are plenty of uh, examples in our history where that has worked to bring about quite fundamental change. But it's also, in some ways, a constraining or a limiting uh, way of change. So again, trying to impress upon my students that this is a powerful toolkit, being a lawyer, this gives you many uh, levers to push, uh, you know, as you as you try to um, make society more just. But at the same time, you know, it is a limited toolkit. And there are other toolkits out there that, you know, may also need to be employed to do the job. Well, I, I thought Matt's answer was perfect. <laughs> but I will just um, add that I always say to my students, when you read a case in criminal law, it will say the state of New Jersey versus Smith, right? The state of whatever, or the United States of America versus some person. And uh, and when prosecutors go into court, they're saying that they are representing you. Um, mm. You are the state of New Jersey. You are the people of the United States of America. There's nothing magic about the law. The law is made by human beings. Mm. And if there's something wrong in the law, you should take responsibility for that. So when you read a statute and it says that it makes certain conduct criminal, that didn't come down from on high. Somebody created that and said, now this conduct is criminal. If it shouldn't be criminal, then you have to feel some responsibility for making a change, either you know at the legislative level or pushing prosecutors not to prosecute um, cases that they shouldn't be prosecuting. When someone is sent to prison, they're sent to prison in your name. If, mm. if prisons are bad places, you have to feel some ownership of that. And, and I say to them, I, particularly now that you're going to be a lawyer, because you're going to hold this position in society where people will look to you to explain the law, to justify the law. And if the law cannot be explained or justified, you're now part of this system. So you have to, you have to feel some responsibility for it. And I, I always hope that's one of the things that students take away from my course is that we're learning this thing, but there's nothing magic about it. And in fact, you have a lot of power. And when you graduate from law school, you'll have even more power. And how are you going to use that power? I love that. I love what both of you just said, because I, I teach similar things, or at least I try to. But I think that, that that message, particularly in your first year of law school, which I think for too many students is an experience where the, the sort of idealism that many of them have brought to law school gets uh, gets beaten out of them is how some people would describe it. I think it's really important, one, as Matt said, to remind folks you are picking a particular toolkit here, um, and you need to be thoughtful about how you wield that toolkit. And I thought what you said, Taya, was incredibly you know, powerful, that when someone is sent to prison, they're sent to prison in your name. I think if, if people thought about that in, in that way, that there might be you know, different conversations about our criminal justice system. So I want to thank both of you again for giving me your time today. It was an absolute pleasure to, to speak with both of you and to hear more about your teaching um, and your scholarship. And I am so much looking forward to a time when we can actually be in a building together and go to lunch together and you know be, be colleagues in the way that we really value at Rutgers Law School. So thank you both so much. And I'm going to give you back your day. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you. It was great. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.